0: More than once, actually.
1: Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting.
0: Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: I never win and tell.
0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Hi, uh, my name's Chris Owens. I played uh, Jeffrey Spender on The X-Files, and uh, I'm happy to be talking on The X-Cast.
3: Welcome to the X-Cast. I'm your guest host, Darren Mooney, for a very special episode taking a look at Monsters of the Week, the new X-Files critical history uh, by Zach Hanlon and Todd VanderWolf, exploring the history of the show and sort of walking through episode-by-episode reviews of each of the 11 seasons and two feature films. And I'm thrilled to be joined to discuss this by the authors, Zach and Todd. How are you guys? Good.
2: Good. I'm I'm quite well.
3: (laughs) Perfect. The... um, so just before we sort of jump into talking about the the book, because um, I'm a huge fan, and I suspect many of our listeners will also be huge fans of your work on The X-Files. You guys wrote at the AV Club um, covering most of the show's run, um, and then this sort of book is sort of like collects many of these reviews and, and expands upon them and includes elaborations and along with interviews and a variety of other sort of commentary on there. But before we jump in and talk about that, what we normally do when we have guests on the show for the first time is we ask them five questions about their experience of the X-Files and sort of to get a sense of their sort of read on the show and their sort of, you know, attitudes towards the show and their opinions on the show. And because your work is so kind of personal and so like uh, tied up in in all that stuff, I thought it might be interesting to ask you guys those five questions. So if, if we're ready to go, I might start.
4: Yeah, sure. sure. Let's do it.
3: Okay. Perfect. All right, let's jump on in there. Okay, so let's start with uh, Zach then. Um, And what I'll do is I'll ask each of the questions. I'll get Zach's answer and then Todd's answer as well. So the first question is, when did you discover The X-Files? So Zach, when did you discover The X-Files?
4: Well, I was there uh, for the very start. Um, I forget exactly, oh gosh, I should have looked that up beforehand. I forget exactly what age I was, but I would have been in high school. Um, And I watched the first episode with my dad and my sister. It was on a Friday night um and it was kind of rare for us as a family to sit down and watch tv like that especially on a friday evening um but we all just sort of got into it um it's the sort of show where i can't specifically remember remember watching it and just like having a moment where it's like i just sat up and go wow but i do remember liking it from the start and we just sort of became like our family kind of a family routine in our house um my mom never got into it because she was never really into like the sci-fi or creepy stuff but i think we watched together we must have watched the first two or three seasons and i even remember watching um one of the season finales at a friend's house because it was like kind of a everybody I knew was sort of into it for at least for a while. That's pretty incredible. And that was just for the,
3: the first couple of seasons. And then after that, did you watch by yourself or did you sort of, was it like you left home and continued watching? Did it did it remain a sort of a family thing after that point?
4: I think it kind of fell out after a while. Like it just, it's hard, especially with a show that runs that long and goes over because eventually it switched to Sunday nights. I think we, we kept up with it for a little while after that. But um, I remember specifically... Um, I kept watching it long after kind of my my dad and my sister kind of uh went their separate ways. Well, I mean with the show, they didn't actually get wet their separate ways. Um but I uh I remember specifically and I, I mentioned this in one of the reviews, uh watching the the field where I died and like watching the first five, ten minutes of it and just being deciding, nope, I am not interested in this. And just not really coming back for a while. And I um I would watch intermittently from that since from then on. But by the time season seven, eight, and nine rolled around it was very, very um, rare for me to sit down and watch them, especially when they aired. Um which is one of the reasons it was so cool to go through and watch the review of these uh, for the A.V. Club uh, when, with Todd and I because it gave me an excuse to go back and actually finally watch some of the stuff that I'd missed and uh, some of it realizing that I was probably good to have not watched it and some of it actually like really appreciating it and kind of falling back in love with the show. Uh,
3: great. And actually, yeah, we'll, we'll talk maybe a bit about it because like, The field Where I Died is, is, is one of the, the highlights of the book as well, the review that you wrote about and sort of the very personal perspective on that. Uh, but Todd, what about yourself? What about your experience? Were you a fan from the beginning?
2: Uh, I was not, so I grew up in an area where we didn't get the Fox television network at all. <laughs> um, so like to watch stuff on Fox, I had to, um, use our satellite dish to like pull in a signal from Denver, basically. So like it, I had to really want to watch something to watch it. So X-Files was not on my radar at all when it debuted, when I was in, I want to say the eighth grade. Um, this was around season two, season three, somewhere in there. Uh, this, this girl I knew and had a, a bit of a crush on was like, you need to watch this show, the X-Files. It's the best show on TV, hands down. And I was like, oh, okay. And then around this point was also when I was getting into The Simpsons, so I was like much better at pulling in the signal for the fox network so the first episode i watched was the Calusari, which is not like one of their greatest episodes it's perfectly fine i i I reviewed it in the book and thought it was you know thoroughly adequate um and uh i I watched that and was like this is interesting and i kind of watched off and on over the course of however long was into season three um and at that point i saw um I, at that point I saw Jose chunks from outer space and that was the the episode that made me a huge fan of the show and it's, it's still one of the best TV episodes I've ever seen um, and like I, I always I always joke when I see uh, Katie was her name I always joke when I see her that she sort of gave me a career and she did because thinking about the x-files was what started me thinking about television beyond just, like, a thing I turned on and looked at.
3: That's kind of interesting. I mean, I don't want to, to sort of jump ahead too much, because one of the great things about reading the reviews, and particularly in the book as well, is you guys talk about The X-Files and watching The X-Files as a process of, like, learning how television was made. I think, I don't know if it's Todd or Zach, one of you observed that, like, The X-Files was the first time that you learned to look at the writer credit on a,
2: on a show as well. Yeah, I, I think that was me. I think I got yeah, to go I think the that. book itself, yeah. but... But yeah, I, I was obsessed with certain writers. And like when I saw it was a Vince Gilligan episode, I like paid more attention. <laughs> um, and like that, that like manifested in weird ways, too, where I like didn't like certain writers. And uh, now I think they're perfectly fine. But like back in the, I don't know, back in the late 90s, I was very against like John Scheiben. <laughs> <And, like>, he's <laughs> a perfectly fine writer. But back then I was like, well, he's not Vince Gilligan.
3: So <laughs> it's a very high standard to hold any television writer to if you're not Vince Gilligan. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right, I think this sort of like dovetails into the second question, the five questions, which is, uh, what is your favorite episode? Now, Todd, I think you may already have answered this, but we'll kind of come back around to that. But Zach, if you had to pick one episode of the show that's your favorite, what would it be?
4: Uh, it be Clyde Bruckman's, uh, for, uh, God, Clyde Bruckman's final repose. Um, did I, I I got the title right, right? It's not last repose, right? Is it <laughs> final? It's final, final, it is final. Yeah, I'm so sorry. No, I've answered that. I've said that multiple times. You know, it's um, if like. I'm pretty sure that I was I was into the show before that episode aired, but I just remember being kind of stunned. Like that way you get sometimes when you watch, when you read a really good book or see a good movie or when you watch, I think it's different with TV if it's a show that you've been watching for a while because it blindsides you in a different way. Like you've come to expect certain things from the show. Like, you know, okay, I love these characters. I'm not going to be scared. And to watch something like this, which was at once entirely in the X-Files universe and yet also had this different perspective on things and just sort of... So something so fundamentally bleak, and yet somehow humane, and and just sad and funny. Um, and Peter Boyle's performance in it is is marvelous. It's one of the one of the best guest turns the show ever had. Um, and just that experience, it just sort of stuck with me. Um, I was very fortunate to get to review that episode when we were covering them, and that was one of the ones that I was very keen on on getting to write about. And I actually I managed I had to rewrite the review a little bit because I don't think the first one lived up to it but it was one of those shows one of those episodes that i love so much that i could never really write a review it it almost feels like i would just i would instead of a review i would just say just go watch it and yeah (laughs) Uh, there's nothing i can say after that episode ends but yeah that was the first one that i remember really just sort of being kind of astonished by and and just realizing how much potential and how much how much room the show could have to go in different directions and how many different things it could explore um so yeah
3: That's a pretty good pick. Uh, Todd, what about yourself? What would be your own favourite?
2: I mean, I always... I have to come back to Jose Chung's, but one of the arguments I... One of the arguments I, I make in the book is that I think it is a fantastic episode of television. I'm not sure it's a fantastic episode of the X-Files. Um, I sort of argue for it as an appendix to the rest of the show. Like if you were reading it as a book, this would be the first appendix where you got into all this like weird lore and minutia and stuff like that. But uh, I, I love it. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. Um, I'm interested in the way that my opinions on its uh, sort of its central idea – have changed over the years and I'm interested in how elastic it is in that regard. I, I I was sort of talking about this with Darren Morgan, who's one of the people interviewed for the book. And he was like, you know, in the, in the nineties, the idea that, that this, whatever happened during the alien abduction, if indeed it happened was just written off as date rape was just like, nobody really commented on it and now there's like this whole conversation around it and if you look at that episode one of the things that makes it stand up is that like there's sort of this cruelty at the heart of it that everybody believes it's more likely that this girl was abducted by aliens than that she was uh, raped by a boy they all think is a nice guy <laughs> you know like like, and that has weirdly like stood up through the years and I think that's part of the genius of that episode but if I'm just picking like I, I always feel the need to like pick a scary episode too and if I'm doing that I'm probably picking home from the fourth season, which uh, just just really uh, reminded me of kind of the place I grew up with all these like weird foreboding places, (sighs) with all these like weird foreboding places that that people lived in and like rarely came out and had signs that said trespassers will be shot on sight and things like that. So uh, I love home too, and I I, I would put that at or near the top of my list. All
3: right. Um, If you had to pick a favorite season, Zach, which one would you pick?
4: Uh, I think Todd's answer is going to be better at this than mine, just because I have a hard time thinking of the show in those terms. I just, it sort of blurs together. But I look, looking at the list, I would have to say it would probably be either season three or four, because that felt like the time when the show was strongest, both in terms of its mythology episodes and its Monster of the Week episodes. Um, and I think even though Bruckman is in season three, I think i have to give the edge to season four, um, just because it has that brutal mix of, like, uh... Uh, let me just double check to make sure I'm getting this right, but I, that's the, the Scully's cancer season. Yes, Memento um, uh, Mori yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, and I, I love I love Never Again. It's one of my favorite episodes about their relationship. Uh, it has Paper Hearts. It has um, it has just so much good stuff in it. And Small Potatoes and um, the field the field where I died and Home. It just it feels very and feels very much like the show at its best was able to mix those like just sort of the it managed to mix the. Um, the intensity and forward momentum of the mythology episodes with really tight, cohesive uh, Monster of the Week pieces. And not every Monster of the Week piece in that is great. Like, there are a couple of them that I, I didn't entirely love, but I just overall, I think that's probably... It, it's, it's a little arbitrary. If you ask me another year, I'll probably give you a different answer, but season four sticks out in my head.
3: Yeah, that is the quest. That's uh, always the challenge when you're asked to pick your favorite season. Are you judging the season as a whole or as a collection of episodes? That's kind of almost harder to do now, I think, when you look at TV as sort of like a novelistic form. But what about yourself, Todd? What would be your favorite?
2: Uh, I always, I always pick season three. I will say that writing the book gave me a greater appreciation for season four, which I mean, I, has always been like my second or third. But uh, at times, I would be like, yeah, well, this didn't quite work. Like, I, I think the uh, Tunguska turma two-parter kind of shows the mythology running out of steam, etc., etc. But but rewatching it for the book, I, I found a lot in there to like really love. Um, Season three, though, just for me, is the one season where everything works. There are some fantastic Monster of the Week episodes. The mythology is still really clicking along in high gear. And it's the one season where you have an all-time great Vince Gilligan script and some all-time great Darren Morgan scripts. And those are sort of the two voices within the show that I think have have stood out to fans over the years. So season three for me is just... Outside of a couple – and I, and actually, let me take that back. Season three, even I think the bad episodes are more entertaining. Like I would much rather watch the one with the killer cats than a lot of the <laughs> show's bad episodes because it's, it's just like it's a fun bad episode as opposed to something like um, – sanguinarium from season four which is just sort of dreary and bloody for the sake of being dreary and bloody so yeah i i, I think i'm always going to say season three and then my my number two will probably change
3: i'm half tempted to ask what your number two is i know it's not the question but i'm kind of curious now <laughs>
2: well no i it i i'd probably say more firmly season four now there was a time when i would have said season two uh i think season two has a lot of great stuff in it and i know people who who really love that season, but but season two to me kind of lacks a couple of the things that season three and season four do at such a such a high level. And in particular, I think the uh, the way that season three and season four give Mulder and Scully kind of a personal stake in everything that's happening. Season two lacks that a little bit. There are too many episodes where they're just sort of like shuttled around by the plot, and sometimes they're fun, but most of the time that gets kind of uh, wearing.
3: All right. Um, the fourth of the five questions, then, is who is your favorite character? And it could be anybody. It could be Mulder. It could be Scully. It could be The Smoking Man. It could be Clyde Brookman. It can be one of Darren Morgan's wonderful, eccentric minor characters. So, Zach, if you had to pick a favorite character on the show, who would it be?
4: Oh, boy. Um, I I think, I, think I, I, I would like to say Scully, just because I feel like that reflects better on me as a person. <laughs> um, but I think I'd probably have to go... It's boring, but I'd have to go with Mulder just because Mulder is the character that I kind of connected with for the longest over the course of the show, and just the uh, just watching him like I feel like he has i in in general I think he has one of the best like he has a really good arc over the run, I really love what they did with him. Well, I had some issues with where Scully's story ended up in, by the end of the, the run in season 11, I thought the choices they made to make Mulder, especially in season 11, kind of older and grumpier and kind of confused at the world's left him behind really worked in terms of my affection for the character. Um, I, I guess I'd probably go with Mulder, um, with like a honorary secondary thing to uh to to Doggett. I um I I had not actually seen any of Doggett's episodes. I don't think before we did the reviews, and um I really liked that character. I don't think he was given quite enough chance to really uh shine as much as uh. Well, I mean was, he's only in for a couple of seasons, anyways. But um, I'm a I'm a big fan of Robert Patrick. I thought he brought a really interesting energy to the show, and I'm still really impressed that they managed to find a character who was. Um, basically he felt like he belonged in the X-Files world, but he wasn't a carbon copy of Scully or Mulder. He wasn't, it wasn't like, they sort of, and I suppose we could talk about this later, but they sort of try to invert the believer and skeptic thing in the later seasons when they bring in, uh, Doggett and Reyes. Um, but I feel like Doggett is, stands by himself as being someone who is much less, he's sort of skeptical, but at the same time he's, it's more of like a, a, a common sense approach than like Scully's very scientific thing and i don't know i think i thought it was it worked very well uh it was very impressive to me that they managed to create a character that was that interesting that late in the run
3: yeah i am half tempted to steer the second half of this conversation towards the later seasons because i think that some of the stuff you guys say about that is very very interesting and kind of the dogged stuff might be a nice gateway to that but before we do that todd um if you had to pick like your favorite character on the show who would it be
2: scully um, <clears throat> I'm glad that Zach said Mulder because I was afraid we were going to have the same answer. Um, like I, I love Mulder. I am probably more of a Mulder in real life. Like when- Lucky Land Casino,
0: asking people, "What's the weirdest place
2: you've gotten lucky?"
0: Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Uh-huh. In my dentist's office. A woo a hand clap, or a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law, See terms and conditions. 18 plus. When my wife and I go on vacation, I frequently drag us to, like, haunted places to, like, uh, just, like, I don't know. To look for ghosts um and she enjoys it so it's I'm not like she's not my own scully um but scully to me has by far the more interesting story arc which is not necessarily coming to believe but coming to understand that Mulder is not right but like that she needs to support him through this. And, like, that has some that has some connotations with the idea of how often we devalue the stories of women at the expense of the stories of men. But at the same time, I think that Scully gets to have her own arc. She gets to have her own personality. She sacrifices so much, and yet she sort of keeps on going. She's in some ways the most resilient character in the show. I feel like she gives up more than Mulder does. Um, and she's also, like, super smart, you know? she's She's the one... I think the show, uh, Frank Spotnitz talks about this a little bit in the book, but the show only works if the answers Scully gives for what happens are completely plausible, uh, completely understandable, and in some ways more rational than Mulder's. And the show, you know, needs the monsters to be real most of the time for the horror to work, but you also need uh, Scully to be, you know, presenting an answer that also makes sense, and I think that... That in many ways marks her as she's a character defined by frustration in some ways. And I find that really interesting, fascinating way to go. And I think that that really only happens because the show ran 11 seasons. Like if it had run five, I don't know that she would have been as marked by that. And I agree with Zach that the show sort of forgot how to write her uh, from roughly William's birth on. But um you know, she Jillian Anderson was still fantastic in the three remaining seasons. And I, 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 but I don't blame her for saying she's done because I could see why. Um, but uh, you know, as far as like sort of a supporting player, I've always loved the cigarette smoking man. I get why they keep bringing him back, even though it's completely implausible. Um, he's he's just such a banal evil, and yet he has sort of the ultimate evil. And I, I've been thinking about him a lot lately, uh, and I wonder why. So,
3: <laughs> absolutely no relevance to the world that we live in whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but um okay and if you had to pick final question here but uh zach if you had to pick a favorite moment from the entirety of the series now it can be a, a long scene it can be a short exchange it can be a single line of dialogue if you had to pick one moment from the entire one of the x files what would it be what would be your favorite
4: I have a moment in mind, but I want to give it a caveat saying that this is almost certainly the wrong moment, if that makes sense. There are no um,
3: wrong answers. Well, there, there are a no sen- wrong answers.
4: In the sense that ideally I would want a moment that was pure Mulder and Scully that captured all the show's ability to be scary and funny and sad at the same time, and Really, just because their relationship is is the foundation of the show. But the moment that came to mind when you initially posed that question is one that's actually just Mulder. Um, I mean, Scully's involved tangentially, and it's something that happens very on early on in the series in an episode that I don't particularly like. Um, I don't know what number it is, but since season one, uh, the episode Conduit, um, uh, four, I think. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's it's generally it's kind of a dull episode. It's still kind of it's very clearly the writers sort of trying to figure out how can we just keep this about alien abductions all the time, Um, and they hadn't really expanded outward into monsters yet, which they would do soon. Um, It feels very kind of kind of loose and very sort of stayed and slowly paced a very different show than what the x-files would eventually become um but at the very end of it but it does a, it does a nice job of sort of reinforcing uh molder's relationship with his sister um and at the very end of the episode it while i don't know if the rest of the episode really earns that emotional attachment the last scene is is of skelly listening to um tapes of uh Mulder in like hypnotherapy um and that shows Mulder sitting in a church of all places, uh, and as voiceover um, saying, talking about like he's just having this vision of his sister. Or um, I can't remember the exact words, but it just ends with him saying like that. This voice promising that he'll eventually see his sister again, and everything will be all right. And the, the the therapist says, "Do you do you believe that?" And he says, "I want to believe." And that to me just sort of even just thinking about it kind of gives me chills. And that to me just sort of captures one of the things I love about the show is that idea of. Monst- believing in monsters, not just as "oh no, these things are scary and going to kill us," and more as just believing in, in possibility, believing in the idea that that belief in monsters is like a two sided thing. It's like both it's yes, everything the world would be suddenly more terrifying, but it it also means that there would be so much more things that so much more that could happen, so much more like. And I I find that very. It's not something that would come up a lot on the show, but I found that very moving, and it kind of it made me kind of. Connect with that character a lot more, and um, it's just one of the things that always stuck with me from the show.
3: And Todd, if you had to pick a
2: favorite moment, uh, it's probably uh, from my favorite episode because it's the moment that, that hooked me on the show. Is that closing monologue um, Jose Chung gives that sort of underlines all of the characters uh, in such a, just a short and pithy way, but also I think the idea at the end. Uh, where he says, for though we may not be alone in the universe in our own ways on this world, we are all alone, which I'm probably butchering the quote speaks to the heart of the show, which is in some ways about loneliness and about the desire for connection and about the desire for understanding and how hard that can be to find. Um, And yeah, to me, that's just like the series in a nutshell. And I, it's, it's a, a wonderful monologue and I, I adore it.
3: Cool. I was actually gonna like dovetail into talking about like the history of the project and your guys sort of work at the A V Club reviews. We might do that in a moment, but it feels like the kind of you guys picking your favorite moment, Zach picking his favorite moment from Conduit and Todd from Jose Chung's from Outer Space, it feels like it kind of dovetails neatly into like a question about what the X-Files was about for you guys, like what the X-Files, why it held such an interest. Because you guys wrote about, well, together and separately, you guys have written about all 11 seasons and have produced a book on it. Um, And that's a lot of commitment for, I mean, television reviewers, particularly television reviewers working at a remove from this as well. I know that you guys did it as part of the AV Club's classic TV coverage. But what is it that sort of draw drew you to the show, and still presumably draws you to the show to the point where you would you'd write and edit this book about it? Um, either of you, if either if either of you wants want to jump to in, in.
4: Oh, Todd, you want to go first on
3: this one? <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. Or, or if either of you wants to step back, that's also a good option.
2: <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, I will tell you that one of the main reasons I started reviewing it for the AV Club was I was getting paid to do it. Um, toward this, when I started out, it was uh, uh, freelancing. And just the more pieces I could rack up, the bigger my check would be. So, but I had always loved the X-Files. Uh, and I like that was a... We sort of had it laying dormant in the archives. Keith Phipps, the, the editor of the AV Club for many years, had started it. He turned it over to Zach. They had sort of canceled it because I think the readership was not as robust as they'd hoped it would be. Uh, they had originally done it sort of in the build-up to I Want to Believe, the second movie. And then the second movie was not the hit people sort of thought it might be. So the the reviews were just sitting there. And then got started getting more comments on them we started getting people saying oh hey do you want to you know do you want to revive the x-files and i was like okay sure I'd, I'd love to do that and i'll get paid to do that although for the amount of work we put into it we were frequently <laughs> reviewing like toward the start there we were reviewing three episodes a week plus doing <laughs> like capsule reviews of space above and beyond like yeah um, <laughs> For the amount of work we put into it, it was, it was, it was probably not worth the, I think we got paid $50 a piece. Yeah. Yeah. It was very
4: low at that point. Yeah. I remember that. Um,
2: And, but you know, it, it was a show I loved and going back into it just made me like, love it even more. And I think what continues to draw me to the show is, is, is twofold. It's sort of that sense of, now it's threefold, I guess I should say. It's, it's that sense of loneliness it's that sense of an old America that's being paved over by modernization, by the internet, by things like that. Like the story of this show, as I think I read about in the the home review in the book, the story of this show is Mulder and Scully come to a town. It has a little local legend. They expose the legend. Sometimes they capture it. Sometimes it escapes to haunt again. But like... This is a show about little local urban legends getting like paved over by much larger uh, forces of modernization and 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 the federal government and all of this and like that that obviously had a certain context in the 90s but what i watch it for now is like this nascent sense of where we've headed since then this idea that like there's always somebody out there to get you that there are these overweening forces and the people who worked on the show, if you talk to them now are like a little leery of that. And that goes from Chris Carter all the way down. Like they obviously don't believe that like the government is hiding like alien, alien uh, technology or whatever, but they definitely have this fear of like, did we create this world we live in now? And I think um, sort of Darren Morgan's answer to that question is like a lot of the conspiracies today are not based on any, Anything. They're just sort of based on the idea that I I don't like this group and I feel like they're doing bad things, so I'm going to make up bad things they're doing. And say what you will about the conspiracies in the X-Files, but like something like Roswell, there's a reason UFO people are so interested in that. So I think that's kind of a fascinating dichotomy to watch the show through that lens in 2018. And I think that's one of the reasons Season 11, to me, is so much better than Seasons 9 and 10. It has that really strong central idea of, did the X-Files accidentally make the world a worse place? And, like, it really wrestles with itself over that.
3: Yeah, that was a a huge tone of, I think, like, articles that were written. I believe you may also have written some of those articles, Todd, and I I know Zach maybe covered it in the reviews at the AV Club as well. This argument, I think Ingu Kang did an excellent piece um, at Vulture about the idea of watching the X-Files through a modern lens and how sometimes that's very difficult. Did you... I know you guys would have obviously written these reviews uh, or written the reviews that maybe inspired you and provide the basis of some of the reviews in the book, like Roundabout, as you pointed out, like 2008, 2009 into 2012, and obviously going back to write them for the book in the context of like 2016, 2017, 2018. What was that like? Were you looking at the show in a, in a different light after that? I'm
2: trying to think if we sold the book before or after the 2016 election. I think it was slightly after and that like colored a lot of everything (laughs) that the show did in seasons 10 and 11. Um, Not as much season 10, but it's certainly there Uh, especially in the, the mythology episodes, which are messy, but try to sort of like deal with the idea of Alex Jones and all of this and not quite as well as they might, but uh, they're at least grappling with it. And then of course it definitely, uh, it definitely influenced season 11. So that's the thing about this show. And the thing that marks it to me as a great television show is it's meaning shifts with the times and it's comfortably elastic enough to do that. Like I think the piece you're referring to with that Ingu wrote, Ingu wrote was um, that uh, sort of about Scully as a feminist, like a feminist landmark in the nineties. And now she feels a little bit less like that and how that's happened and how that's changed and how the show has written her. And like, And yet it can still sort of stand up to both readings. And I find that fascinating. There are not a lot of TV shows that escape their era in the way that the X-Files has. And like, I honestly, if you, we'd been talking about this 10 years ago, I would say it was sort of consigned to that era, but events have conspired to make me realize how, how much is within that show that continues to speak to us right now like um to my mind that puts it on the level of something like a twin peaks or a sopranos or something like that where there's enough in it that it continues to reveal new sides of itself you know through through time
3: there is there are actually like reviews in in the book as well i'm thinking like of shadows which is a first season piece that you guys would have written from scratch for for the book And you sort of you touch on how some of the dynamics that were in play in the 90s, you wouldn't have thought much of. But I think in the in the present day, like the idea of this ghost of an authority figure haunting a young woman who he's taken a shine to becomes a lot more sinister in context. It's kind of fascinating how the show continues to give in that regard, I think.
2: Yeah, and that's a thing that we, we went back and forth with. Um, both of the editors we worked this with on this project were women. Um, Zach and I, you know, <laughs> you can tell from hearing us. Um, it, like, that uh, was interesting because the two things about the show that I think in this age people are more sensitive to are sort of its depiction of race, which was always very well-meaning, but also always very clearly written by like white guys and sitting in a room, <laughs> um, and its depiction of kind of uh, you'd say gender politics issues, things like sexual assault, rape, stuff like that, which was often used as like mere plot fodder, sometimes in ways that were really compelling and interesting, and sometimes in ways that were not. And I think like one of the big reasons that. Uh, the longest review I wrote for the book was postmodern Prometheus is because I'm sort of wrestling with my love for that episode in light of the fact that it contains some really disturbing elements that the, I don't, a lot of people don't feel the episode thoroughly interrogates. I kind of do. Um, and I won't get into it cause that would be like a 15 minute monologue, but uh, it, to me, like, yes, it, it's, it, It's certainly something worth grappling with, and I I kind of like that about the show. But I know that Zach had some reviews where he had that happen as well, maybe around different issues, so I'll, I'll throw it at him.
4: Oh, yeah, I had, um, there was, there was one, uh, one in particular. Well, actually, the, two of them stand out for me. I forget the title for one of them was about the, the vamp, the creature that, that stole pigmentation. Oh, um, uh, telico. Yeah, that one, it wasn't a, I didn't particularly like the episode even at the time that I was reviewing it, but it was one of those frustrating efforts to attempts where I sort of tried to wrestle with it. And I'll be honest, I'm always a little bit nervous about doing stuff like that. Not because I don't think it needs to be done or that it, like, it should definitely be addressed. I just am always unsure of my own ability to address it and I'm always very worried about about stepping on people or or expressing myself in ways that turns out to be yeah. um, either misinterpreted or intent- or just bad or just wrong because I don't really understand things because I grew up in a small town in Maine um, and I am a cisgendered white male so you know um, you don't know everything um, nobody does but you know even less than you used- thought you used to um, and, and that was one that I, I tried to deal with a little bit more again I don't really think I, I got into it as much Um, especially in an episode like that, which just isn't, I feel like if it had been a stronger episode, it might've been worth discussing a little bit more, but when an episode is weak for other reasons, um, it's, it becomes much easier to sort of just say, yeah, this stuff is here and it could have been used better, but it's just not a very good hour of television. So you just kind of have to move on. Um, and the other big one that stood out for me. I think there might've been more. There's like stuff here and there, like stuff in season 11 with the horrible reveal that, that apparently the cigarette smoking man had impregnated Scully with science, sure. alien science, um, which is just, no. Um, but uh, the, the other one that really sticks out to me, especially in terms of uh, working with an editor was um, the episode gender bender, which just from the title alone, uh um, raises certain warning flags. And I remember that was one of the first reviews of the show I ever wrote. Um, I think it was either the second or third week after I took over for Keith. Um, and I remember at the time really just enjoying it because I, it was one of the ones I remembered from as, when I was a kid. And just thinking it kind of captured the sort of weird vibe of the show and, like, lots of neat, like, just eerie, cool stuff. Um, and then when I revisited the review, I just sort of turned it down and sent it in as is. And then uh, one of our editors, I think it was Ashley – what's Ashley's last name? Do you remember?
2: Ashley Alberts.
4: Ashley Albert, um, she kept, She very smartly pointed out, this raises some stuff. You need to talk about this. Um, and I really appreciate the fact that she did. Um, we had we had both of our editors, uh, Ashley Albert and Emma Roberts? Jacobs. J- oh, my God. I'm sorry. I'm terrible at names. <laughs> it's not a matter of disrespect. With the
0: Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
4: 18 plus It's a matter of me just having a Swiss cheese brain. Um, pushed us both uh, in several several occasions, and um, with that episode in particular, I I don't again. It's not I didn't I wasn't writing a thesis because I am not neither qualified nor capable of writing a thesis on those subjects. But the very least I tried to point out that I still think it's a pretty strong episode just in terms of structure and pacing. Um, it's pretty engaging and weird, but it also some of the things that it does are some of the things that that sort of to me, you're kind of indicative of a lot of the, the show's sort of problems when it comes to issues like that, is that it's less consciously hurt, hurtful and more like people who didn't realize that they should have been taking these issues a little more seriously than they did. or um, Which is something that's very possible and easy to do, but it is also very necessary to point out. Um, because those are things that are typically kind of... Um, that happen on TV all the time, in every sort of art. Um, so yeah, that was that was something that we sort of tried to, tried to wrestle with a bit more... Um, and I won't say it's, it's the most, I'm not going to say it's perfect, but I think we just, at the very least, we did try to engage with those, those topics as with an open and respectful mind as we could in the, yeah, in those contexts.
2: And I think Zach brings up an interesting point, which is. Uh, kind of in the editorial process, my editors were pushing back against the episode uh, Bad Law, which involves the uh, the like Indian guy who can yeah. crawl up in people's butts. The butt genie. Yeah. That, <laughs> that's what he's called, I think, by fandom. The butt genie. And like, they're sort of like, well, we need to deal with how this is racist and othering. And it is. But at the same time, the episode is so weird and stupid that I don't know that, that like you're going to come away from that being like um, drawing conclusions about uh, Indian people or mystics or whatever from watching it. So like, there is kind of like, you have to control for, uh, you know, the episodes, ultimate, uh, thesis, the episodes, ultimate message in a way. And granted, it's easy for me to say that as a white person, but like, also I, I really, I really hope nobody's drawing conclusions about Indian people from bad law because like, <laughs> my God.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, this actually sort of brings up an an interesting sort of uh, question because I was wondering about like how you guys designed to write the book and how you went about writing it because it's structured in a way that it includes you You guys obviously did like a lot of interviews a lot of background material on it, it's structured episode by episode and I'm wondering did you guys settle on that that approach sort of to go episode by episode which always kind of evokes the reviews that, so in mean, some of the reviews you would have written for the AV Club, did you ever consider alternate formats like for example doing like a holistic thesis statement or taking it season by season or dealing with a theme by theme or even just a collection of essays or was it always going to be like episode by episode like a journey from through the show from beginning to end from the pilot to my struggle for
4: i think it was always going to be episode by episode um we did there were, there were there were conversations about it but when we when they initially when when Emma initially reached out to us uh she reached out to Todd and then they got in touch with me um the it was very much the idea was you have all these reviews already on the AB club um why don't we find a way to put them in a different format and bring them to some different people and give you a chance to rework some of that stuff a lot of which is into is a little rough um so i don't think we ever it just be, and also because of the size of the show, once we realized that it was basically just going to be a process of taking these reviews, um, and bringing in, just like filling in the gaps where we'd missed stuff or where, um, Todd had been away or we hadn't, or Keith had started the project so we had to do some of those early season reviews. Um, once we realized that it was going to be basically this massive project collecting all the reviews, it definitely kind of, Limited the sort of stuff that we could do otherwise. Um, Todd did all those great interviews, and we were able to include those as like sidebars in the book. Um, but because it's just so big, you you can't. It, it once once that became the main goal, it sort of took over and like kind of put aside any any idea of doing any sort of broader thesis statements or more um or more kind of, like it, I there are definitely there's always going to be room for that kind of book as well. Um, and it would be interesting to see how that book sort of book would turn out, but it, we, I think we, the, the, the idea was always, um, this was our pitch. These are the, we, we've done most of the work here. So why don't we just try and find a way to reshape it and make it more broadly approachable for a wider audience?
2: Yeah, I think, oh yeah, I, I, um, uh, one thing I will say changed. They wanted, you know, Abrams wanted it to fit in with the uh, existing books they've already done, which are reviews of Mad Men by Matt Zoller Sites and reviews of Breaking Bad by Alan Seppenwall. And those two are collaborating on a book on The Sopranos, which will be out in January. And like one of the things, so they sort of wanted to sit on a shelf with those. And one of the things that I think really changed was originally we thought it was going to be about the length of those earlier books, which are both around 250 pages and it is much much longer than that. Uh, we kind of we'd kind of talked about like some of the lesser episodes just doing more as capsule sized blurbs and you can see some of that throughout some of the episodes are pretty the reviews have become pretty short. But I am a notorious overwriter, so I feel like I Kept driving the project longer and longer, but at the same time, like we got so much great stuff from the interviews we had, you know, the show kept producing episodes. Like it was a thing where the book eventually just had to be as long as it is. And like, I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud that we, we fit as much as we did into those pages. And I, I think that, you know, if it had been 250 pages, maybe it would have been a quicker read, but I think it would have been a lesser book. I think it's uh I think it's legitimately a book you can sit down and, like, read. And that is a thing I never quite expected. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that they, like, sort of followed the way that it kept getting longer and longer. And um, if Zach and I ever work on another book again, we'll try and make it a little bit shorter for their sake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: I like that. The, the creative partnership is just sort of – it's just beginning. It's just beginning of blossom. But I will say, actually, Todd, just on, on that, it's um... – I actually think I having read the book, I read the book cover to cover this weekend, I think it holds together fantastically. And one of the things I really, really appreciated, uh is that some of my favourite and I don't, you know, we're we'll talk in particular about like the way that you wrote it and stuff like that, but some of my favorite like reviews in it are oddly enough like the longer reviews of less popular episodes or the longer reviews of episodes that you guys don't necessarily love so it's it's that you take the space to unpack say nothing important happens today part one and part two which you devote a considerable amount of space to despite the fact you imagine that the temptation would be three paragraphs and we're done and I, i as somebody who read the book and who really really enjoyed it, i really appreciate that you took the time to do that
2: and i want i like I, have, I i went through and and in the editing process i read the whole book I, like i we did a number of drafts and most of the time i just like read my stuff cuz i you know it's a long project but i went through and read the whole book for one of the times when we were kind of proofing it And I was amazed at how well it held together, not just, like, as a collection of reviews, but as the two of us advancing an argument about the show. And, like, I'm sure Zach and I would disagree on certain particulars, but it it really does feel like we have sort of talked about, like, we we sort of have found a way to advance an argument about the show's importance in the TV canon that, like, uh, really works when you read the book as a whole.
3: That's actually a nice sort of jump into that because i think in I think it's in your introduction, Todd, you make this argument about like how we view television history and in particular how we tend to have like particular landmarks in there. the two landmarks you mention are I think I love Lucy from the sixties and the sopranos like which obviously premiered in late in nineteen ninety nine during the the seventies and the x files. And I think you sort of allude to the possibility that, like, there's a tendency to, like, view sort of like a hard and fast view of television history, which doesn't necessarily take into account the existence of, like, spectrums or shows that exist in in long form in the way that, you know, they did during the 90s, and particularly the X-Files. And if you were making an argument for the X-Files as, like, a as a piece of TV canon... How would you make that argument? What do you? I assume you do think that it belongs in the TV canon. But what is it about the show that sort of defines it? That makes it such an important piece of television history
2: for you? You know, for me, I think it's just it stands kind of in the middle of all of these. If you want to look at TV history from a, like a much higher point of view, it kind of it kind of stands in the middle of all these different movements, like. You can point to it as, it's most easy to point to it as the child of Twin Peaks, but it's also the child of Moonlighting. It's the child of 70s cop shows. It has a lot in common with its contemporary law and order, which I think is the only time you would ever say that sentence. Um, (laughs) It's, you know, it's, it's an interesting, like, example of TV between kind of the more episodic but still serialized stuff that aired in the 80s and the much more heavily serialized stuff that The Sopranos ushered in. And like one of the problems with how we talk about TV is we often tend to talk about it in terms of like landmark tentpole shows that quote-unquote changed everything. And The X-Files was surrounded by so many shows like that. Like you have Twin Peaks, you have Sopranos, but you also have like The Simpsons and Seinfeld that were really changing things over in the comedy sphere. So... It's a lot easier to sort of not look at it because the children of the X-Files now are mostly CBS procedurals. They're like, you know, shows like Criminal Minds is is very similar to the X-Files, but a much lesser show. Like you don't see a ton of series in kind of the prestige space, and I'm using air quotes around that, that feel as influenced by it. But, but when you go back to it, like I said earlier, there's a lot more in there than you might expect there's a lot more to like kind of dissect and figure out and think about than there is in something like Criminal Minds and it doesn't feel cheap. It really does feel like it's, it's going for telling this big sprawling story of like all of American history, but particularly American history post-World War II. So it's, it's a, it's a bigger, it's bigger on the inside than on the outside. And I think that that is always the mark of something great. And to me that, that earns it a place in the Canon. Um, I know some people who would disagree, but I feel I, like I feel like it's, feel like it's a, an incredibly important show. Um, and if you just want to look at it as you know kind of a, a, an example of TV changing, I think it's experiments with serialization while they were immediately like supplanted by other shows were important and an interesting way of going. And like, I look at the way it balances standalones with myth, myth, arc episodes. And I think there are so many genre shows, especially on television that could benefit from like, you think about some of those Netflix Marvel shows, which are so bloated, how much they would benefit from an X-Files structure where they had like five episodes a season of the big story arc. And then, you know, the other eight episodes are just cool standalone superhero of the week stuff. Like bring it back, please. Please. <laughs>
3: What I was going to say, actually, because you, you guys are—you guys have—you're two fantastic television critics, and and it's interesting that you mention like the discussion of the books that you're you're in with, sort of like uh, Seppenwall and, and Zoller Eats, and particularly like Mad Men and The Sopranos and stuff like that, and particularly this book as an addition to that sort of canon. Can I ask you guys, like, as television writers and television sort of critics? Do you think that like television criticism has come on a long way, or has been sort of more accepted or more mainstreamed in recent years? I'm thinking particularly of say the Pulitzer, um, that was won recently by Emily Nussbaum, for example. But in terms of like the discourse and the fact that we're talking about television shows in the way that we are now, do you think that's a sort of a sea change in the past decade or so? I, th- I think. Go ahead, Zach.
4: Oh, I was just going Uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, uh this is probably more Todd's belly look than mine. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, just in terms of the fact that I have a job. Um, the it, I, I with the thing that I... because I started doing. I, when I started doing, uh, we called them reviews for a while, I guess they're recaps now, but um, when I initially started writing for the for the AV club, the TV club section, um, it was still a very new idea. There had been places like Television Without Pity that had obviously kind of pioneered that idea of these epic, long, um, moment-by-moment summaries and, and commentary. Um, but that approach to television um, still felt fairly new just because it was something that I don't think you could have done in any other format. I think the internet kind of made it possible for us to start viewing television in a way that you couldn't necessarily do in like a newspaper or in a, or in a book, because it basically was like you would be reviewing the experience as it happened for people who were also watching it as it happened. Um, and I think that sort of changed how we kind of viewed TV in terms of and it sort of brought TV criticism up a level. It definitely feels just from when because I like remember when I started. Um, I felt very much like I was just trying to scrabble in and get get a foot in the door at the AV club, basically, because I'd been doing book reviews and I wanted to expand and I didn't have access to going to screeners for movies. Um, and I didn't really wasn't really a music reviewer. So I TV just seemed like a very accessible thing. And I think the accessibility of TV in terms of it's designed, generally designed for a wide audience and it's not you you it's good to have the canon knowledge, um, but it's also something that you can sort of go in fresh to, um, kind of made for a lot of people like me in that um, you could have all these different voices. Um, and as TV sort of expanded it sort of hit at the moment where gradually you started to have, and over the, especially in the past few years when there's so much more TV, um, you've seen coverage change again, like the 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 recaps, the sort of uh, recaps, um, cult, recap culture has kind of been, it's, it had, it seems to have peaked and it's sort of on the, the fading slide, but it definitely feels like we had changed the way we talked about television. Uh, in some ways, that conversation um, had some shortcomings in it. I think the newness of it and the fact that it was so easy to get into it without having a vast history experience of watching earlier television could, some, could often lead to people foregrounding modern, newer shows and saying, well, TV used to be crap, but now it's good. Um, and I one of the things one of the things I appreciate a lot about are the critics who are constantly trying to me- mention a lot of this stuff has antecedents and like TV wasn't always it, it had a, cause it had a reputation for I mean one of the most probably the, some of the most famous criticism of television was basically how it was all bad but here were a few things that were tolerable and nowadays we're able to look back and appreciate things in different ways um, I'm kind of rambling but I guess my point is I, I do think there's been a change and it's been kind of fascinating and I think it's watching how that change has sort of affected how we view the canon and how that still is sort of a constantly mutating and changing thing over time, as it should be.
3: And you sort of reference that there, the vast wasteland idea, I think, is sort of what you're alluding to there, the idea that, like, television in the past was seen as being disposable and throw away. I mean, we're talking about an X-Files book here, and you kind of, you mentioned books about, like, the Sopranos and Mad Men and stuff like that. Is there a process of, like, reclamation in there in terms of, like, as television critics? And you mentioned, like, the the establishing of a cabin, uh, sorry, a canon. Are we doing that retroactively? Is there is there an argument to be made for like retroactively creating a television canon um, in terms of the medium? Sorry,
2: I mean we've always been we've always been trying to create a television canon. Like before The Sopranos debuted, there were books you could buy that were like these are the greatest TV shows of all time etc. etc. And what's interesting is how like before the Sopranos debuted the focus of greatest TV show of all time was so sitcom heavy. Like it was Mary Tyler Moore, it was I Love Lucy, it was Cheers, it was something like that. And those shows obviously are still in the conversation when people have that conversation about what is the best show ever made. But now it's so much more drama heavy and increasingly it's more modern dramas. And I, I sort of get why that has happened, but I think we're also seeing a shift back to uh, shift back to talking about TV outside of the lens of kind of the modern anti-hero drama. That's that's very exciting. And you mentioned Emily Nussbaum's um, Pulitzer win. And, like, she's somebody who's been very instrumental in driving that conversation forward. And, like, I'm interested to see what happens next because I feel like the anti-hero movement is, is run out of gas. Maybe somebody will reinvent it. It could always happen. But it's definitely, like... A situation where a lot of the most exciting work on TV right now is being done in comedies, but we're still sort of talking about these prestige dramas, many of which are like fundamentally empty. And uh, I think that's a, I think that's sort of a fascinating world to be talking about old TV in. I do wonder when we talk about establishing a canon. I do wonder, you know, what the market is for books about much older shows. Like, I do wonder, like, could you write, I love Lucy, the complete companion? I mean, clearly some people would buy it, but like how much, you know, how many of them would there be? And it it could be even a more obscure show. Like um, there's this show East side, West side, which is this great drama from the fifties that like, nobody would buy a book about that except for like me. So like, I do feel like one of the things that, 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 that TV canon lacks is you know, sort of a curation way, a sort of a curation um, Venn diagram intersection, where you know there's one place everybody goes, and you sort of know that this is going to be worthwhile. And the way that film has with like the Criterion Collection for sort of serious cinephiles, and then Turner Classic Movies for more casual cinephiles, um, you just don't have that for TV. I, I think it's probably going to happen. It feels inevitable that somebody will start a streaming service for that. But we're not quite there yet.
3: Okay. Um, just to sort of to drag us back to the X files I think we're sort of we're on the on the verge of wrapping up here. But one of the things that I found it's kind of interesting when we talk about like television criticism, because I think it's I think it may be Zach in his intro talks about how at the A V Club the television, the editorial hand in the in the television writing was a little bit looser, and the writing was encouraged to be a bit more personal. And one of the things that i I really admired because uh, I would have been a big fan of those AV Club reviews, and I, I I read the book, and I was very thrilled when I when I leafed through the book to find that a lot of the anecdotes and personal stories from from you guys were still in there. I'm thinking specifically of like Todd's introduction to, for example, Prosmoth and Prometheus or Home, or I think it's Zach as you mentioned talking about the field where I died. Um, how, do you ba- how did you balance that? Was there ever a sense when you were going to do a book adaptation that you might strip out the, the personal anecdotes or were they always part of the conversation? Because I'm very glad they're there. I absolutely adore them, to be clear. Uh,
4: I will say for my part, um, I literally, because I was so terrified when they initially told us how, book, how big the book was going to be and how much of a problem that was, I actually, there was a period of time where I went through and I cut out every every time I mentioned myself. In like every review, um, I, I like I was very heavy-handed, and there are still some reviews in there that I I look at now, and I'm like I'm I think this is fine the way it came out. I don't think I shortchanged any great episode that I covered, but I do think in some places that the reviews came out a little shorter than they they might ideally have been. Um, but I think I think because because of the nature of the criticism and because of the nature of going back, especially with TV Club Classic, is a lot of the times. The way that format was introduced is, um, one of the reasons I was so excited to be covering it and taking over for Keith. It was, it was a show I had a personal connection with. Um, and I don't, I don't know as I necessarily always felt entirely comfortable bringing myself into the conversation as just for personal reasons. I, I would try and it would always feel like a little, sometimes would feel a little forced and awkward on my end, but it did feel like in order to be honest, I had to keep some of that in. Like I couldn't just pretend that I was like speaking from on high, that some of the, some of my relationships to some of these episodes are very personal. Um, And while I don't want to like let that completely overwhelm any sort of critical judgment, I do think it would have been dishonest to sort of leave that out completely.
2: Yeah. I, I cut myself out a lot. There were a lot of reviews where I just didn't like the episode didn't have a lot to say to me. So I just like did some weird story from my life (laughs) (laughs) and I, I, I definitely was in a place where like, I have come around – I still love first-person criticism. I still think it has a place, but um, just in my job of trying to find new writers, both for the A.V. Club and now for Vox, I have come across so many people, uh, especially like young white guys, who write first-person criticism, and yet it's all just the same stuff. It's like a story about a time they fought with their dad or something, and like that's great, but – a lot of the time it lacks the specificity to really make it matter and to give it the specificity it needs, you almost have to ignore the thing you're criticizing. And like, I find it's much easier to paint with broader strokes. Um, one, of the, one of the first person stories I kind of fought to keep in the book that ultimately got cut out was um, this story about uh, I opened Jose Chung's with, which was about my earliest memory um, it just it just didn't, it didn't tie into the review as well as it needed to to work and like to make that happen would have required rewriting the review a lot more than I think I was comfortable with and now I read that review and I'm like this could be better I probably should have just started from scratch <laughs> uh, for how much I love that episode but like <laughs> uh, you know I tried to keep it when I thought it mattered like you mentioned the home review I cut it back but it's still in there this idea of like uh, where I grew up influencing my viewing of that episode and especially postmodern Prometheus like I think it's impossible to talk about why I love that episode without sort of grappling with, you know, the the personal attachment I have. Because if I don't do that, then I can just seem sort of like a callous jerk who doesn't understand why a lot of people don't like that episode. Because I do, but also like, I have this connection to it that I find hard to ignore. So when it was a thing that explained my reaction to an episode, I left it in. But a lot of the time it was just like, Once I went on vacation. So I I I, I, would cut (laughs) that.
3: Gotta hit that word, Um, (laughs) Canton.
4: Yeah, yeah, just uh, just to add a little bit, uh, just because I think it's amusing, is that one of the things is a lot of these reviews, at least for my part, were written uh, very, early, very early or very late on a Saturday morning with like an hour or two to get to deadlines, yeah. and especially some of those later period episodes where there's not a lot going on, and I literally could have just said, oh, by the way, this is another unf- unfinished pr- premise, and I, I would just vamp for time, um, because you just want to make sure you, it's not the best way to write reviews, but um, I think it's also part of that experience of reading the AV Club stuff at that time. Because it was sort of a journal. It was almost. It was better formed than a journal of the experience would have been, but it also had that sort of feeling of that sort of raw feeling of um, you're coming into my head for a little bit, and this is what I'm thinking of at the time. So it sort of worked. But it was one of those things we definitely kept in mind while we were writing the book.
2: And you know, one of the things I wanted. This is just a quick aside. Like the most fateful thing that ever happened to me was when I came on board at the AV Club. Keith was like, you know, we try not to go over 1,200 words. And I heard it as be under 1,200 words. <laughs> so like the <laughs> fact that now everything I write is at least 500 words too long is like, it, it's all his fault. All his fault. <laughs> <laughs> um, just quickly
3: I, I kind of I was, I was reading the book um, and I had some sort of like questions about the process and feel free to tell me this is like a you know you guys work on your own mechanism and you've got no interest in answering these questions but I was kind of curious about how you guys divvied up the the reviews now I know obviously the stuff you wrote at the V club you took a lot of the reviews that you wrote then and them down but in terms of stuff like for example say um, the first season where a lot of that was covered by Keith Phipps how did you divvy up the episodes there or the final seasons where you know Todd wasn't working at the AV Club, so Zach had written all the reviews. How did you decide which ones Todd covered? There, did you uh, did you sort of flip for them? Did you make a case for them? Did you, what, or did it just happen naturally that your interest sort of lay with what you what you got? Oh, uh,
4: I know with season ten and eleven. Um, I think season ten, I specifically because I actually did I review both of those um, entirely for the AV Club, and I know with season ten there was like one of those reviews that I specifically wanted. Um, like I, my review, cause I get to review that Darren Morgan episode that season. And I was like, I really liked how this turned out. So I would really like to, to keep that. Whereas the season 11 Todd spent specifically, he really wanted to write about the Darren Morgan episode. Um, so my review still exists at the AV club, but Todd's is the one in the book for, and it's uh, very good, um, <laughs> no, but I, I, I think I forget. Did we even divvy those up before the season even aired? Yeah, we did. Um, we
2: did. What, sort, yeah. of, sort of what happened was we had done, he had done the, Zach had done the odds and I had done the evens in season 10. And I was like, this is just, if we just keep doing this, then, you know, I'll get the other Darren Morgan episode because we initially when we had done the first four Darren Morgan episodes, it worked out that we each got two of them. So that that kind of like ended up being a, a neat way to continue with that idea. But then Zach also got the one about the, the drones hunting Mulder and Scully, which I wish I had gotten to write about. So,
4: yes, I was very happy about that one. That was a great episode to write about.
2: But I also got to write about this, which I think is a hugely underrated episode. I think it's a very good episode of the show. So just sort of the odds and it just sort of ended up being odds and evens. And I think in season one, I think in season one, it was like we just kind of um, pointed to certain episodes. In general, if it was like a mythology episode, I ended up writing about it more often than not just because that was – I feel like I had stronger feelings about that yes, but that's very just true. in in season 1 and then the first half of season 2 it just kind of often ended up being that that you know um we took an even split but it was like certain ones that we felt more passionate about or whatever. There was never like a, a lottery or a draft or anything <laughs> um, like no that. No fisticuffs at dawn. Um, <laughs> quick
3: quick one though, um, just finally before we wrap up, because one of the interesting things and it's a, it's a tension within the show and you discuss it as a tension within the book itself and the title of the book is Monster of the Week, uh, which is a great title and obviously everybody's familiar with like, the connotations of what it means and stuff like that. One of the interesting things about the book is some how you approach a mythology episode. Sometimes Sometimes you lump two-parters together um so for example i think the blessing way in paperclip and i think you do cosco and terma together and sometimes you do them separately like and 731 i think you do separately for example and i was wondering how do you guys well first of all what do you think of the split between the mythology and the monster of the week episodes and second of all was there a sort of a logic behind the mythology episodes that you treated as two one parters as compared to like a, a two-parter holistically
4: I think that the two-parter thing was sort of an editorial uh, push just to save space. Um, And I do think, I think Todd was, I think Todd was the one who kind of uh, said, okay, I think we can do these as two-parters. I think it was more when there was a mythology episode that was like, an episode that really strongly stood out with its own identity we tried to keep that on its own but it was when it was once like a two-part that sort of uh, pushed together either they were work a little bit weaker or, or else they just the, the story flowed along so well that it just made sense to put them together in a single review. Um, we, we kind of clumped those together because some of the, some of those reviews were ones that we'd written separately and then we had to sort of edit together um, into one big hole um, and in terms of the the, the monsters of the week uh, mythology uh, split, I do think, and Todd mentioned this earlier, I think it's one of the X-Files um, kind of its under, most undersung, but most one of its most important contributions to the way sort of TV serialization developed over time is that idea of, I think it was the actual structural concept of the split was pretty brilliant. Um, it could sometimes lead to situations where you were wondering why Boulder and Scully weren't Talking about the potential end of the world threat that was hovering over their shoulder while they chased down, you know, a bog monster in New Orleans or something. I that's not an episode. I just made that up. Uh, but that'd be great. Yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? Uh, but like, like I, I don't know. Is it uh, over time? I, I, it's kind of a cliche, but the monster of the week episodes remain strong in that. And I think this is something I tried to talk about in the book, in that with a Monster of the Week episode, if it's a bad one, it doesn't indict the rest of the Monster of the Week episodes. Whereas with the Mythology episodes, if you have a couple of, you have a bad one, or if you have a couple of weaker episodes in a row, because they're all connected together, it starts to drag down the whole thing. So I think just by the nature of the structure, you end up kind of appreciating the Monster of the Week episodes a little bit more. Um, But yeah, uh, go for it, Todd.
2: Yeah, you know, it, it ended up being like, um, if it was a two-parter that we had already written about, a lot of the time, those AV Club reviews, we wrote about the two-parter in one piece. So, like, uh, you mentioned the first two episodes of Season 3. That was like, I had already written that, and I just had to, like, I just had to edit it down, basically. Or the opener of Season season 7 or something like that. Those were often just things I had already written and had to edit down. What was trickier was co- collapsing uh, when we would split up. Those two-parters was collapsing them into one, and a lot of that happened because for Seasons 4, 5, and 6, we were reviewing the X-Files and Millennium, so we were doing one X-Files a week and one Millennium, uh, and that you know uh, ended up leading to a lot of those having to be collapsed, and so that that was a little more involved, but it wasn't too bad, because a lot of the times we had the same thoughts about them, there were only a few times that I feel like Zach and my thoughts were wildly divergent and, and often you could just sort of be like, well, in this episode, this happens. So um, as far as like the split between the monster of the week and the mythology, I, I certainly sort of subscribe to the conventional wisdom that monster of the week episodes have held up better through time than the mythology. But I definitely feel like the mythology is now a slightly underrated. Like uh, we've, we've done some interviews with more X-Files specific sites and they kind of have had this fear that we're not going to talk about the mythology at all in the book and because of the title and like obviously we do it's covered throughout Um, but the thing that i think has gotten a little overstated about the mythology is that it's impossible to understand when actually the through line of it is pretty clear it's just like there's so much stuff going on that that can be easy to ignore and actually, the series, the original series finale like lays out exactly what happened. It's just like a, an excruciating slog of a television episode. So getting through it and hearing about it is tough. but the, the sort of the other thing, I guess I would say is that when those episodes were good, they were so propulsive and so tied in to like the characters that it was really hard to um, it was really hard to ignore like, how exciting they could be! So, yes, the mythology fell off a bit, but I feel like saying, you know, well, ultimately it doesn't come together is sort of true, but also negates what made those episodes so good, especially in the first three or four seasons.
3: Cool. Um, I think that that about wraps us up. But thank you very much, guys, for taking the time to do this. If people are looking to buy Monster of the Week, um, where is it? Well, it's available everywhere online. But do you have anywhere in particular you'd like to point people towards?
2: Oh boy, um, you know, I, I don't offhand. Uh, the, the Abrams Books website, uh, if you look at my Twitter profile, I have a link to buy it on the Abrams Books website, and they link to all the places you can get it if you don't want to support Amazon, which a lot of people don't. Like, there are other ways you can buy it. I would say if you can get it at your local bookstore, I I travel a lot, and when I travel, I've been trying to sign copies of the books. Uh, It doesn't always work out. I went to The Strand the other night, and Lin-Manuel Miranda was already there signing books, and he took priority over me for some reason. (laughs) So uh, it doesn't always work out, but when I can, I I, I do. Um, If you happen to be in Los Angeles, go to the last bookstore. I'm going to try and drop by there and and do some signing of their stock so you can – have that. But yeah, I, I, if you can buy it from your local bookstore, but if not it's available everywhere online and you can go to Abrams Books and they have links to all of the different sites you can buy it from.
3: Alright, well thank you very much guys for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Um, good luck with the uh, good luck with the book as they say I think in Father Ted of all things. <laughs> Take it easy. Um, in the meantime, uh, the x will be back uh, next week covering Talitha Kumi. Um, until
1: then, trust no one. The Xcast and X-Files podcast is produced and presented by Tony Black, alongside a dedicated group of podcasters and X-Files fans. You can find us on Twitter at The Xcast and on Facebook if you type in The Xcast, or at our group X-Files Basement and Xcast Podcast Fan Group, where you can continue the discussion about all things Mulder and Scully. If you want to support The Xcast further, you can now subscribe and become a patron of the show on Patreon. On Google, just type patreon.com forward slash the Xcast. That's P A T R E O N. You'll see all of our tiers, subscription options, and perks, which include early access to episodes, bonus content such as commentaries on X Files episodes, access to a patron chat zone, and even appearing on one of our patron roundtable discussions. We would appreciate any support you can give the show, so just go to patreon.com. Forward slash the Xcast to find out more. Our title music is provided courtesy of Will A, who you can find on Twitter at I am Will A Y E.